Seeking mental health care can be overwhelming and even scary, but it doesn't have to be. I'm Dr. Josephine McNary, and I'm committed to making this process easier for you. Each week, my expert guest and I unravel a different form of therapeutic intervention in order to bring comfort and understanding and to help you get back to your true self. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Mind Stories. Today, I have the pleasure to introduce Kendra Delahook. Kendra is a licensed marriage and family therapist specializing in helping clients overcome anxiety challenges. After spending several years working in trauma treatment centers across Los Angeles, it occurred to her that the traditional talk therapy models had limitations that prevented patients and their families from experiencing lasting healing. This inspired her to pursue certification and training in somatic therapies and has been teaching this modern model to her clients in her private practice with amazing results. Welcome, Kendra. Thank you. Happy to be here. Well, I'm so excited to have you on today because I've wanted to spend a little bit more time on this podcast talking a bit more about a type of therapy that I want to know a little more about, and that is somatic therapy. And so I know this is something that is very dear to your heart and something that you love working with. And so I hope that we can talk a bit more about this therapy and I can learn a bit more and the listener can learn a bit more about somatic therapy. In its basic form, what is somatic therapy? So somatic therapy, I would say it's an umbrella term. It's also called somatic psychology. And there's a lot of modalities that therapists use in sessions that fall under that umbrella and um, different areas of research, such as interpersonal neurobiology and some Modalities include somatic experiencing, sensory motor therapy. So there's a lot of different things that fall under the umbrella, but all of the modalities and areas of research do have a common theme. And what is the theme? So there's two important things. And the first one is that the mind does matter, but the body matters first. And so I can kind of get into that and explain more what that means. And then the second theme is the body holds a ton of wisdom. So all somatic therapists and practitioners will all agree that the body holds a ton of wisdom because it stores all of our memories and experiences. And it's a great place to start. So let's unpack the first theme, and that is The mind matters, but the body matters first. And so I like to share this with all my clients because there's extensive research on cognitive therapies such as CBT, DBT, ACT is amazing. And all these modalities have a ton of research behind them. We know that they work and they're really, really helpful. But these modalities work best if you have access to the part of your brain where we make our best decisions, where we are good at communicating, where we're able to see big picture. And the thing that really matters to get access to this part of the brain is your physiological state. So if a client comes into my office and I can see that they're dysregulated or not really present in their body, it's like skipping a very important step to go straight to the coping skills and talk strategy because they're not regulated in their body and they wouldn't 
have access to the part of their brain that they need to really get the most out of those tools. And how might you tell that somebody isn't regulated in their body? It's tricky. And there's definitely some training to pick up on someone's state. I do think therapists in general, we can feel others' energy pretty well, but we do know a lot about the autonomic nervous system now. So we know that eye contact, how open or closed their eyes are really matters, how much tension they're carrying in their body, if they're stiff and kind of on guard or relaxed and open, how how much they're fidgeting or moving their body and even cues from their facial expression. So if they're occasionally smiling or communicating through their face, that's a sign that they are in an autonomic state of safety and not dysregulation or threat. Got it. So it's being present is really this idea. Being present. Yeah, exactly. Okay. So as a somatic therapist, it's like, let's get to just the basics of just how you exist in this moment physically. Yes, exactly. And how do you move forward then in that process? Do you only stay in the body in terms of thinking about someone's physical feeling and body experience, or do you move then to kind of the work of what's going on in the mind? Yeah, this is a very, I I would say common misconception. And I think some people are nervous to start somatic therapy because they're like, we don't want to stay in our body. We feel too much sensation here. We want more skills and more, more of the mind tips and techniques. So I would say A great, well-rounded practitioner definitely combines the two cognitive modalities and skills with the body. And bringing that balance is really where you see a lot of the change. You don't just stay in the body. There's a time and place for language, but we so often move there way too quickly with skipping over the really important messages of the body. So do you teach someone skills in terms of how to be in their body to recenter? Is that a big part of the actual work? Really, really big part of it. So I'll share a few steps that I take with all of my clients, whether they're kids or a couple or even a family unit. I found that educating them, psychoeducation is the first most important step in this work. Because it's really hard to change something you're not aware of. Mm-hmm. So I really take a deep dive in teaching my clients about their nervous system, what it means to have feelings and sensation, what their autonomic nervous system does, how it's a constant surveillance system of their environment that's going on without them even trying or noticing. And then after that period of education, really helping them understand their own unique patterns of regulation. And this is very specific to the person because we all are so, so different with how we're wired, our genetics, just the way that our brains were wired. And then also that's shaped by our experiences. So every person is going to move through regulation and dysregulation in different ways. But a really important part of this work is helping clients build the awareness of where they are, I like to say, on their ladder. So I have to shout out Deb Dana's work. She does an incredible job with explaining the polyvagal theory to therapists. And she says, 
we all have a ladder. And when we're at the bottom of the ladder, holding on to it, we're grounded. We feel safe and regulated. And as we climb up the ladder, we feel more and more dysregulated. And not to get too deep into it, but there's different states that our autonomic nervous system goes into depending on how high up we are on the ladder. But think about when you're at the top of the ladder, you don't feel grounded. You're up high and your body can feel really, really shaky. So teaching clients to understand, oh, this is how I feel when I'm grounded, when I'm at the bottom, at the base of the ladder. And this is how I know that I'm going up the ladder. And this is how I know I'm going down. And then the next step is really teaching them the skills to self-regulate, to bring themselves back down the ladder. I've found that that process is extremely important and really empowers them to not be enemies with their body, but to feel okay with being in their body and understanding that we're constantly in this ebb and flow, this dance of feeling safe or under threat. And a lot of this goes on without our conscious awareness. Hmm. Interesting. I mean, kind of thinking about this ladder, you know, maybe there is the sense of danger or instability, but it's in a way having you, despite that instability, maybe be able to feel grounded and secured, maybe in spite of that too. Absolutely. And that's the power of awareness. It's just such a superpower. And I love working with kids to build this awareness because once you have it, you're just not as afraid of sensation or emotion. You really know that it'll pass. And this is part of your body just trying to regulate. Right. Well, I'm so curious about the body holds the wisdom. I'm, I just want to hear about that. I'm so curious about what that means and how you, how you see that. Yeah. So our body is a very, as you know, a very complex unit of many, many, many different systems that work together to keep us alive, to help us survive, especially in relationships. So oftentimes when there's too much language, especially in therapy, in the context of therapy, we stay afloat of the problem. So if you think of an iceberg, just using language it's helpful, it's descriptive, but it tends to be the tip of the iceberg above the water. And underneath is that wisdom of the body. But it's very common for us to not be connected to the sensations or the wisdom of our body because to survive this world, like our jobs and our crazy lives, we have to kind of unplug and disconnect from our bodies to get through it. But when we talk about how bodies have extraordinary wisdom. It's helping people realign and become attuned sometimes for the first time to what sensations mean. And Mm -hmm. sensations can be anything from exploring what hunger and fullness looks for one client or more talking about like a occupational therapy lens of what feels like too much. And this can be connected to our sensory system because some people have over under reactivity to sound, to touch and taste and smell. So body wisdom and helping clients understand that their body is just so much wisdom is first 
helping them get to know their body, and then helping them understand the messages that their body is feeding them. And we do know that trauma obviously makes this complicated and our body absolutely holds body memories from trauma. So it can be a great way to work through trauma by helping the body relearn what is safe and what is threatening. Mm-hmm. Right. And it also makes me think of the book, The Body Keeps the Score. Yeah. When I think of that title, it's a little different than the body being wise. It's, I mean, it, there's overlap, but there's also this idea that the body being wise is kind of this positive thing. And maybe the body keeping the score is this receptacle for just stuff coming in, right? Yeah, it's it's tricky. It's a dance. And again, there's a lot of fear of being too connected to your body, especially if you do have trauma. It is terrifying. So this is where it does get complicated. And it's important to work with a therapist who has trauma training feeling regulated or even peaceful and safe in the body for some, their trauma happened when they were regulated, when they were at the bottom of their ladder. And so actually feeling calm and joyful and connected becomes threatening. So that pairing happens to some people, especially with relationship trauma It is challenging and it's not always a positive thing to listen to the wisdom of the body, but that's where repairing that mind-body connection and reteaching the body that it is safe when you are regulated is so important. I'm wondering, you were talking a little bit about the skills that you use to kind of help someone go down the ladder. And we definitely don't have enough time to talk about all the skills, but any pieces of basic tools that you kind of tend to use with most of your clients to help stabilize them, get to feel like they're on stable ground? Yeah, definitely. I'd say the breath is the number one skill. It's the easiest and most people have access to it at any time. Again, trauma does complicate it. Sometimes breathing is connected to the trauma, so that's not the first skill that some clients like, but it would go breath movement is incredibly important to help us downregulate or upregulate depending on what autonomic state that we're in. Another one that I am obsessed with and I teach to everyone that I work with is self-compassion. And I think this practice is really misunderstood almost like as a self-inflating practice But it really goes hand in hand with somatic therapy because basically what I'm teaching my clients is behavior is not a reflection of someone's mind. It's a reflection of their body. It's a reflection of their state. And so when you're able to give yourself grace for, you know, if you had road rage or losing it with your kids or saying something you regret to your husband or partner, Self-compassion helps you remember that behavior is just the body's attempt to regulate. It's not always helpful and it definitely can do some harm, but self-compassion is the quickest way to remind yourself, oh, okay, I'm not going to beat myself up for that. That was really my body's attempt to get back into myself and to help manage the chaos or the lack of control I was feeling internally. So that's a really important skill to help someone kind of get down the ladder. Got it. 
Yeah. And so I'm curious in your practice and you talk about first focus on the body and then you can really get into the mind. So I guess my question is in your work, is there kind of more of a gray zone or, or is there a clear line between when you move from somatic work into more of the cognitive work with somebody? I guess the question is when does the somatic work end and then the cognitive work begin? I would say after the first stage of education, they always work together. Mm-hmm. Now, during my sessions, if I notice that my client's dysregulated, we stop right right away before we continue with any of the cognitive processing or i.e. using language too much too many words. So, if I do feel or sense that my client is triggered or is maybe having a trauma response, that's a time to pause all cognitive work and bring the body online to bring their body back to a state of safety and regulation. Right. So I'd say they always work together, but the most important thing is that they are regulated enough to have access to the part of the brain to use those skills. Right. Yeah. Other thing, because I have you here and I just want to ask you these questions. So, okay. So under the umbrella of somatic therapy or somatic psychology, so what are the prongs to that umbrella? So somatic experiencing is one of them. That's a very popular one. I'd also say sensory motor psychotherapy is a great modality. Pat Ogden, there's so many different ones. I'd say there's more areas of research than modality. So there's the polyvagal theory. And I think I brought that up with you at another conversation. And then I'd say the last prong is like interpersonal neurobiology. So really understanding how the brain is involved in intimate relationships, how one inner experience is directly related to another inner experience or inner world. I guess my question is if someone's looking, if they say, you know, this really resonates with me, right? And this idea of body, mind, paying attention to the body, kind of respecting the body and its wisdom. And if they're looking for a somatic therapist, I guess the specific question I have is the difference between someone who says they do somatic experiencing versus someone who says they're a somatic therapist. What What's the difference? Is there a difference? And why would you maybe think about one versus the other? Important question. I would say that if any therapist says that they're a somatic therapist or they have somatic training, it's safe to say that the body's involved in the process and they really prioritize the wisdom of the body. Mm-hmm. Now, there's different kinds of interventions underneath the modalities that are very specific. So there's some that are directly related or most helpful for trauma and specific kinds of trauma. And then there's other ones that are more directly related to eating disorders and and regulating food intake. And maybe if you've had a history of eating disorders. So I would recommend looking at the specific types of techniques or training that the therapist has. And most importantly, make sure it's a good fit. So ask questions kind of share what your challenges are and make sure that they have the training and the insight to mm-hmm. tackle those specific challenges. Because again, somatic therapies, it's general and you want to make sure that the type of intervention will really support the need. 
In some cases, would somebody have a somatic therapist and a psychotherapist? That definitely can, can happen. And I've seen that happen. Obviously the course of treatment wouldn't want to overlap and you'd kind of have to have specific goals with a somatic therapist, but I would say in general, I haven't seen that. I do know a lot of somatic therapists who outsource certain techniques such as hypnotherapy Mm-hmm. kinds of meditation, EMDR, brain spotting, different interventions that are more short-term and specific to the trauma. But yeah, nothing, you know, that can happen. It really depends on the needs of someone and making sure that the treatment is working together and not against each other. Yeah. I'm asking you very hard questions <laughs> and I acknowledge that these yeah. are hard questions to answer. <laughs> I guess one other thing I had a question I have is what has drawn you to this specific type of therapy? What hooked you onto it? So I first really got into this when I was in graduate school and I was at a a treatment center for my graduate training and it was a super stressful job. (laughs) I was working so many different treatment centers But this particular one was an adolescent residential trauma treatment center. So we worked with a range of kiddos who had suicidal ideation, self-harm challenges, addiction, and just getting in trouble with their families and the law. And this particular treatment center had a system. It was called the level system. And basically it was put in place to encourage good behavior and discourage bad behavior. Super well-intentioned system that cognitively makes sense, right? And the consequence kind of for bad behavior, such as not showing up to therapy, having a meltdown or a blow up, being rude to others, was you would get level dropped in the moment when you did the bad behavior. And when you were level dropped, certain privileges were taken away. Like you couldn't do the fun activities in the house. You were limited on phone calls to home, to your parents and friends, or you could have extra chores in the house. And I remember when kids were level dropped, they went into this extreme mode of shame and isolation and they withdrew. And to be honest, it really broke my heart and it just didn't feel right. I feel like we were really missing the mark with these kids. And I realized the message we were giving them is you can choose your behavior and therefore you can choose your emotions. Just get it together. Like just do the right thing and be a good kid and don't lose it. Stay in line. But this didn't make sense because the clients there really cared about the approval of the therapist, of the staff and the approval of their friends and family. So I knew if they could keep it together, they would. And we were really sending them the wrong message. And so I, this is when I realized we're doing in this field sometimes more harm than good with sending kids the message that they have control of their emotions and their behaviors, and that they can't trust their bodies, which looking back in those moments where they would have meltdowns or run away or whatever, again, that was their body's attempt to regulate and kind of help them be in the moment in the situation. So 
after that, I quit that job. And from there, I opened up my private practice and I really committed to approaching challenging behaviors and challenging relationships in a new way of really supporting the body and looking at the body instead of the behavior. Right. Yeah. So you see quite a few children in your practice then. Yeah. Yeah. I'd say about half, half kids and then half individuals and couples. Yeah. And it sounds like it's a better way to work in terms of focusing on the body, obviously in terms of outcome. Yeah. I really have seen it just take the work and the results so much farther because there's that sense of empowerment with the self-compassion piece of my body's doing its best. And yes, I have control, but not all the time. Like our bodies truly do hijack our best thinking. It's our job to obviously take accountability over our actions, but especially with kids, um, helping parents really look at children's challenging behaviors in a new lens is super rewarding. And I get really excited about it. Yeah. Well, it sounds like great work. Yeah. I love it. Well, so before we say goodbye, I mean, thank you for enlightening me about somatic therapy and the work that you do. So what I will do is I will make sure that I have some information about your practice on the episode description. And also if there's any other resources that you think might be helpful to the listener, we'll also make sure we have them there so people can learn a bit more about this type of therapy. Great. Sounds good. All right. Well, thanks so much. Take care. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Bye. This has been Mind Stories with remote appointments in California and offices in downtown LA, Santa Monica, Hermosa Beach, Marina del Rey, Echo Park, and Santa Barbara. Cal Psychiatry specializes in medication management, mood and anxiety disorders, alternative therapies, women's mental health, and more to help you get back to your true self. Visit us at calpsychiatry.com. Thanks for listening to Mind Stories and don't forget to subscribe. Subscribe.